my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 10, The One Night Selling, Bill Moffat. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Dan Katz comes on board, you know, 
I mean, they, Katz is asking him on the, on the tape recording over and over and over and over and over about, did he ever say anything to you about a car in the parking lot? Did he ever say anything to you about a car in the parking lot? You know, and uh, he finally says, no, you know, I, I wish I could help you, but no, I don't remember that. Now, between the time that he said that and the time that he got on the stand, uh, you know, something had to have changed because Tina Griffin knew to ask the question, did you ever say anything? Uh, maybe he was afraid somebody might have saw him and he went right into the, yeah, he said something about a car in the parking lot. You know, and then and then Tina Griffin, in her closing arguments, you know, she makes she makes reference to that. You know how how would Bill Moffat have known about the the car in the parking lot? The defendant didn't tell him that. Well, you know, <laughs> the detective told him that. And you know, one of the things that really pissed me off about Frank and Pat Riley was that you know Steve Skelton did a great cross examination of. Bill Moffat, you know, and he asked him, you know, why didn't you call someone and tell them uh, what Jamie had just told you? And he said, well, because when you're in the receiving center in Joliet, you couldn't use the phone. And he said, well, then why didn't you write somebody? And he said, you know, because if you didn't have any money, you couldn't, couldn't mail out any mail. And he said, well, why didn't you stop a guard and tell a guard? And he was like, well, I never saw one. You know, and he was there on a medical furlough. Uh, he was held on a medical for, you know, like 60-something days. There, there was one officer that I knew was in, in the receiving center at that time that I, I, I remembered, and his name was, his name was Michael Butchkowski. He was a lieutenant, and I had told Frank and Pat, you know, we need to get this guy because he can come in and testify, number one, everybody who went to the yard, every single person in the Joliet Correctional Center at the time who went to the yard could use the phone. If you went to the yard, you could use the phone. It was a state law in Illinois at the time that if you didn't have money to mail out mail, everybody in the whole state of Illinois got three free state ride homes passed out every single week. So you could have could have mailed out mail. Lieutenant Butchkowski could have came in and testified that, you know, about the count procedures. They come around and they go to sell the bell every day, three times a day. When you go to yard, you're seeing officers. When you're going to chow, you're seeing officers. There's no way that you could be in in, in a in a prison and not see guards unless you were blind. And uh, that's what I wanted Butchkowski to testify to. And and my attorneys told me that they tried to find him and that he no longer worked in, in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And then when I got here to Stateville, after I'd been convicted, one of the first officers I saw was Butch Kowski. <laughs> and uh, I asked him if he still worked for IDOC, if he'd quit, and he said no. You know, so he's been there the whole time. And they, they just lied to me. One of the things that I want to I wanna stress about Bill Moffat and a lot of these people as, as we move forward and we've covered in the past, you know. What I really want people to know and what I really want people to think about is this. If someone is lying about anything, and I don't care what it is, if you're lying about your birth date, if you're lying about how much you weigh, if you're lying about your middle name, I don't care what it is. If you're lying about anything, if you get on the stand or you go to the police, you involve yourself in a, in a murder investigation, you're 
providing information, if you lie, if you're lying about anything, then then how do you accept anything that a liar will tell you? It, it seems like you know in this case and with these witnesses, you know, there was no, they have no level, no standard of honesty. They don't have to have any integrity. Their their word doesn't have to mean anything. Just as long as they say Jamie told me he did it, it's all good. Everything else can be a lie, but as long as they get up on the stand and say Jamie told me he did it, the state the state's all all good with that. Bill Moffat lied about whether or not he could get on the phone and call someone, whether or not he could send out a letter, whether or not he ever saw a guard. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable that you could be in a maximum security prison. Let me, just, let me tell you from experience that you could be in a maximum security prison and never see a guard. I mean, they come around and they pass out the mail, they come around and they pass out the medication, they come around and do count three times a day. So he just simply lied about that stuff, you know? And uh, I, I just think that people should should keep that in mind, you know, as you're, as you're evaluating these, these witnesses and, and the evidence that has me 20 years into into a license for, for something I didn't do. I, I think that the jury should have, you know, my attorneys, every chance they, they had to, you know, expose these people for lying about something, they should have. Randy Howard says he called me on the phone and, and, and then I went and picked him up at the bus station. I didn't have a phone. You know, that was a lie. I didn't have a car. That was a lie. You know, this is what the state has for all these years hung their, their hat on when they're denying us the ability to do any forensic testing. All these witnesses said he did it, so, you know, forensic testing wouldn't change. It's, it's just, uh, it's just ridiculous, you know? And, uh, you know, we've, we've got some more witnesses that, that uh, are, are coming down the, the line that are, are the same way. I hope, uh, I hope you guys will continue to, uh, to stay engaged and tuned in because, you know, the, the, the truth of, of how they did this to me is, going to come out and uh, you'll, you'll get a clear picture. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Bill Moffat reached out to police for the first time in 1995 when he was in prison for an aggravated battery charge. At that time, Detectives Crow and Barkus visited Moffat at Illinois River Correctional Center. Moffat told the detectives he was Jamie's Sally when they were being transferred to receiving in Joliet. They spent one night in the same cell, and Jamie confessed the Clark Oil murder to him. Moffat asked Snow what was wrong, and Snow said he had people after him because of something he did. Snow then said he pulled an armed robbery, and the kids started giving him a hard time and was being mouthy. Snow said he had been smoking a pipe for a few days, and so he offed the kid. Moffat said he thought Snow mentioned the name Billy during their conversation. Moffat stated that he and Snow never discussed this situation again. It doesn't appear as if lead detective Crow took Moffat's accounting of events as truth, because there was no mention again until, you guessed it, Crow retired and Barkus and Katz took over the case. In 1998, Moffat was once again sitting in prison, this time for three counts of raping his wife. This was when Barkus and Katz reached out to Moffat and his story grew. Easter Sunday, 
And what I would like for you to do is tell me what you know about that incident. Okay. You just might have to talk up because you're a little distance away and there's a fan going in here. Alright. You just want me to go on from here with what I know? Just tell us what you know about it. Well, uh, Joliet, Adicelli, uh, and Jamie Snow, who, I guess their conversation was, it finally came to a point where it was like he was bragging, and uh, he started telling me about a, a robbery he had done, and uh, of course I was just listening, you know, heck, we're both just going down for time, I was just listening to him, and yeah, no, and he started, he bounced back and forth, uh, with bragging and then starting to get a little deeper into it and I said well he said he, he started out and he said that he had uh, uh, robbed a gas station well the first thing that clicked in my mind of course was uh, Billy Little because everybody knew Billy Little and uh, so I started playing a little further because I wanted to hear just exactly what he did know and uh, so I kept trying to conversate with him about it and carry on the conversation uh, as we carried on the conversation, uh, Jamie Snow said that he had uh, been the one in the robbery with the gun. And of course, at this point, we don't, I didn't know that this was Clark Gas Station. As we were talking on and on about it, uh, he started telling me how he went in. It was just supposed to be an easy, clean robbery. But then the guy tried to come at him or something, and, and he said that he shot him. Well, to clarify it a little more, I asked him, was this the Clark gas station uh, shooting? And he said, yeah, it was. And I said, well, well uh, were you, I asked him if he was the only one, and he told me, no, there was three of them. And uh, somebody would drive the car, and he said they needed money because they had been smoking crack, and uh, they needed some more money. And uh, they just happened to stop at that gas station, and that guy just happened to be working. As luck would have it. In your conversations with Jamie Snow, how many times did Jamie Snow say that he killed Billy Bill or BL or whatever he said? I mean, did you have one conversation where he said, yeah, I killed him, I shot him? Or did you have two, did you have three? Oh, there are. Uh, there was a couple of cases where he, I mean, it was like by this time, if he had talked about it so much, it was like bragging. So I'd probably say a couple, maybe three times. Recall in Moffat's 1995 interview, he stated they only had one discussion, and they never discussed the situation again. You know, I don't know if I knew for the future this was going to happen or whatever, or me just reward money happy, and, and, but yeah, yeah, we talked several times over it. He sounds almost giddy when he talks about the reward money. He thinks it's $25,000. Clark gas station armed robbery with Jamie Snow. Did he ever tell you what type of a weapon he used? He just had a shot. So I would have assumed that was a pistol or a rifle. He shot him because the guy came after him. 
Did you ask him what he meant when he said the guy came after him? Yeah, he said there was an enclosure where the guy was at. And instead of standing in that enclosure, he went to come around it, and that's when he shot him. Did Jamie Snow ever say whether he knew this individual or not? Before? Yeah, he knew him. He didn't think he would come after him. That's why he said it went wrong. Because when he came after him, he had no choice but to shoot him in his mind. So Jamie said that he knew this kid? Yes. Did he know when they went to that gas station that this kid was working there? Yes. That's why he thought the robbery would go smooth. That's why they chose that place. To... Actually, they pulled him for gas. And Jamie got the idea to do this. No, we don't need to pay for it. In fact, let's get some money. And Jamie went in the door first to arm, to arm Robert guy with a pistol. And when he went in the door, one guy was pumping gas and the other guy come with him or something. I don't know how they all ended up in the building or whatever, but they did. And uh, Jamie said that, like I said, the guy went to come around that partition or whatever it was. And that's when he had to make the choice to shoot him. He said he knew who he was and everything. And then, like I said, that uh, they did his money and he wasn't, he wasn't going to let it get in the way that he knew the guy. Did he ever tell you the kid's name that he shot? He told me his initials, BL. You bet. Did he ever tell you who was with him at the Clark station that night? Who was yes, in the and I cannot remember for life in right now, I'm sorry. I cannot remember that. I'm sorry. If you heard names, would you recognize the names? Possibly. Possibly. But I don't want to say that and then pick the wrong one. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. For some reason, that didn't shed as much light on that, that accident or that murder as the other things that he was telling me were, so I subconsciously blocked it out or something. You didn't really remember those things? No. I know there was three, though. I know there was three. And you think they were pumpless, that they pumped some gas? I think. I think. If I remember right, he stopped the gas. And when he stopped the gas, he made a decision to rob the place. Wait, I thought they planned it. I thought they were doing drugs and decided they needed more money. Which is it? Jamie went in the door first to arm Robert guy with a pistol. He said later that Jamie didn't tell him what the weapon was. He assumed it was a pistol or a rifle. How many times did Jamie tell you he shot her Billy Little? Three. And that was during that two week period in Joliet and then he got to go over to some other place. Yeah. Three different times. No, no, you're asking me how many times he shot Billy. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, how many times did he shoot him? Three. Excuse me there. Three, if I remember correctly. Bill Little was shot twice. Did he ever talk about seeing, uh, seeing a car or something, some car pull up? No, not that I remember. Not that I remember, I'm sorry, I can't help you there. Well, it's been a long time. Again, with the car. Did he ever talk about his concern that there was maybe another customer that drove by the gas station or a car that went by? or Well, because of that neighborhood, I'm sure you're familiar with it from where it is. And if you did anything on the premises, you know where that spot is. Uh, well, house, two houses behind the gas station is the Whitmer's, which I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Whitmer. Uh, is the Whitmer's in there, hell, 
even when we were in all in high school, we used to hang out. We were always at that gas station 55, 60 times a day. And uh, so, he, you know, I imagine there was some concern on his part that they, you know, somebody might have seen him. But the reason the way he covered that up was he uh, said that there were flyers around the town and nobody had solved it yet. Ha, 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 they got a $25,000 reward for a murder I did. And that's basically in a nutshell, if you want to sum it up, that's exactly how the man talked about it. Poor Moffat is just not catching on that they want him to say a car pulled up. Is there anybody else that you know of? Yes, there is. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're anxious. He can read your mind. Yes. Anybody else I know of that can corroborate the story that I'm telling you? That's correct. I gave them the name of the guy in my cell in the Illinois River. And if you ask me right now, all I can tell you is I've known because of Dizzy Kroger. May Street on robbery, and he robbed the bank on West Martin Street a few days later, or a day for that day. And I can't think of the little guy's name for that. Like me, ended up being myself in the Illinois River. If I told you his name, would you recognize? You bet. Ed Hammond. Yes. That would be the name that I also gave you, the Illinois River. So he would. You told him this story. Hey, you ain't talked to me if you go talk to him. Okay. Pardon? You haven't talked to me if you go and talk to him. Okay. Um, I just don't. I can't chance it. He's one of Dennis. He's one of Dennis' boys. And, uh, but, he, but you told him the story. No, he told me. Oh, he told you the story. Oh, yeah. He knows it better than I do. What did he tell you? He just he said he knew that Jamie Snow had killed the guy. Okay. And uh, he, he mumbled on more about it, but the best I can tell you is for some reason he sticks in my mind and knowing a hell of a lot better than I do. He told Moffat the story? Jamie confessed to Moffat? And Hammond knows the story better than he does? Well, you said that Ed Hammond was your cellmate, and he was telling me about it. Could Ed have possibly been one of the three persons? Yes. Possibly, or was he definitely one of the three there? He was definitely one of the three there. Did, did he tell you that? Yes. More or less. They didn't come out and say that exact word, but I might have to think about it, to be honest with you. But if I, if I remember right, he was a driver. Ed Hammond was in jail the night of the crime. The following testimony was given by Moffat in 1999, when he was in prison for raping his wife. The following are inconsistencies with Moffat's prior statement. He knew about the crime because all of the advertisements, and he knew Billy Little was killed. Everybody knew Billy. Snow said the guy dropped a pack of cigarettes, or dropped something. That's when he pulled the gun out and shot him. Griffin then asked Moffat if Snow also told him that the reason he did the robbery was because they needed money, because they were smoking crack, and they needed more money for it. Moffat agrees and says, I forgot to say that. Moffat says that Snow never discussed the terms of where the guy was inside, where Billy was in the gas station. Moffat says earlier, Billy was behind the counter. Griffin, did he ever express to you any concern about being seen or being identified? Moffat, there was either a car that pulled up at the stop sign, or that drove by, or something to that effect. But again, I'm not entirely sure. It was something to that effect. Griffin. 
but he was telling you that he was concerned that somebody was going to be able to identify him? Moffat, yes ma'am. Moffat says again, there was something about that other car that pulled up or drove by or stopped at the gas station or stopped at the stop sign or something. There was something about that other car. He was nervous. There was something else about that. Moffat said Snow never said anything about the reward money. At Jamie's trial, he said much the same. He first met Snow at a party at Denny Hendricks. Bernard again asked Moffat if Snow indicated what his concerns were, then asked straight out if Snow was concerned about being seen that night. Moffat says yes. There was some mention for lack of specific but not to the extent of a car having pulled up to the gas station or driven into the lot or something to that extent. Not exactly sure, but there was something about a car that he was afraid that had possibly seen him that night when they were in the parking lot of that gas station. Moffat says he became aware of the flyers, possibly the earlier part of 1994, but doesn't recall exactly the time frame saw them taped on the doors inside the Clark gas station windows. So he knew about the reward long before he came forward to police. Aside from the minor details, it's important to point out the three critical new details added for the grand jury in trial phase. Number one, that Moffat knew Jamie prior to prison. Jamie states explicitly that he had never met Moffat. He knew me and he'd known me from around town. And that, that Denny Hendricks could, could confirm that me and Bill Moffat used to go to parties together and stuff. And that, that Denny could confirm that. See if Denny will, will deny that. Because okay. I've never met Bill Moffat. I don't know Bill Moffat. Never met him in my life. So if Denny will, if Denny will confirm that. He said he met shit. you at a kegger. You know, at a party. That was the last thing he said, I think, in his last testimony. Ask Denny about that. I'll bet you, I'll bet, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. But Denny may have never met Bill Moffat until they ended up in prison together. I don't know. But I can promise you that I never went to no cakers at Denny's house. And I can, and I can promise you that Denny is not going to say that he ever saw me and and Bill Moffat together at fucking parties. It's just not going to happen. I'm positive of it. And Denny agrees. So did you know if Jamie knew him? I don't think Jamie knew him at all. I mean, I don't think so at all because Jamie's circle was way different. Him. The only way I met him is through some parties or something. But I accept back then Jamie didn't go out or nothing. So. Well, he testified that he met Jamie at a kegger at your house. At my house? Yeah. I know that's a fucking lie. Number two, that Jamie was concerned about someone pulling up and seeing him. Jamie Snow we're talking about. Did he ever express a concern about being seen by somebody at the gas station? Oh yeah, he didn't know if they'd gotten away with it. He... <sighs> know how he how he started it he brought up uh he brought up the fact that there were flyers all over the town with the reward for murder he said 
ever talk about his concern that there was maybe another customer that drove by the gas station or a car that went by or well because of that neighborhood I'm sure you're familiar with it where it is and if you did anything on the premises you know where that spot is uh Elton house two houses behind the gas station is the Whitmers which I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Whitmer uh, is the Whitmers and they're Elton even when we were in all, all in high school, we used to hang out. We were always up that gas station 55, 60 times a day. Griffin, did he ever express to you any concern about being seen or being identified? Moffat, there was either a car that pulled up at the stop sign or that drove by or something to that effect. But again, I'm not entirely sure. It was something to that effect. Griffin. But he was telling you that he was concerned that somebody was going to be able to identify him? Moffat. Yes, ma'am. Bernard again asked Moffat if Snow indicated what his concerns were. Then asked straight out if Snow was concerned about being seen that night. Moffat says yes. There was some mention for lack of specific, but not to the extent of a car having pulled up to the gas station or driven into the lot or something to that extent. Not exactly sure, but there was something about a car that he was afraid that had possibly seen him that night when they were in the parking lot of that gas station. Number three, why Jamie did it. Snow then said he pulled an armed robbery and the kids started giving him a hard time and was being mouthy. Snow said he had been smoking a pipe for a few days and so he offed the kid. Did you ask him what he meant when he said the guy came after him? Yeah, he said that there was an enclosure where the guy was at. And instead of standing in that enclosure, he went to come around it, and that's when he shot him. Actually, they're pulling for gas. And Jamie got the idea to do this. Uh, we don't need to pay for it. In fact, let's get some money. And Jamie went in the door first to arm, to arm Robert, the guy, with a pistol. And when he went in the door, one guy was pumping gas and the other guy come with him or something. I don't know how they all ended up in the building or whatever, but they did. And uh, James said that, like I said, the guy went to come around that partition or whatever it was, and that's when he had to make the choice to shoot him. He said he knew who he was and everything. And then, like I said, that, uh, they needed his money, and he wasn't, he wasn't going to let it get in the way that he knew the guy. Yeah, he knew him. He didn't think he would come after him. That's why he said it went wrong, because when he came after him, he had no choice but to shoot him in his mind. Snow said the guy dropped a pack of cigarettes, or dropped something. That's when he pulled the gun out and shot him. It's the little details that were added that Tina Griffin used in her closing arguments to tie Jamie to the crime, using other witnesses who testified falsely to corroborate Moffat's accounting. You know, they, you know, they lie about details that shouldn't matter but they do matter i mean if if you're if you're lying about anything you shouldn't be a witness in a murder case that's that's how i feel in 2009 denny Hendricks gave an affidavit stating that moffat admitted to him when they were in dixon correctional center that he got a time cut exchange for testifying against jamie the following is from a recent interview snow files conducted with denny how do you know him i knew him before he went 
And then, like I said, if I got down to Dixon, and I think nineteen ninety nine or maybe later than that, I'm not for sure, but when I got down there he was uh he would have come out for like the first week or two I was there. And then I was on the ball field one day and he came out and talked to me. You know, he was trying to say, Man, I was like, you know, why'd you do that shit? He said, Man, you know, just trying to try to get out of trouble. Yeah. He straight said that he lied about it. So, did you know if Jamie knew him? I don't think Jamie knew him at all. I mean, I don't think so at all, because Jamie's circle was way different than him. The only way I met him is uh, through some parties or something. But, like I said, back then, Jamie didn't go out or nothing, so... Well, he testified that he met Jamie at a kegger at your house. At my house? Yeah. I know that's a fucking lie. He said, I was never, yeah. he said, ask Denny. And I didn't want to prepare you for this because I wanted to, you know, he said, yeah. ask Denny if he's ever seen me and 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 Moffat in the same room together. Because he said the same no. thing. That, no. And Bill Moffat, I don't even, he might have came to one of my cares, but never with Jimmy there and it and like I said when I went to Dixon I didn't know he was there you know and I was out on the yard every day for like two weeks and then uh, he walked up on the ball field one day he looked totally different than he used to he was like man I suppose you want to whoop my ass and I'm like you know and he then he got to explain the situation and he said he straight said that shit just to get up so, you know do the best time like that's okay you know and he try to and I'm like well you know I'm gonna you know go to seg over uh beating his ass or anything so, so something that's done anyways yeah yeah I don't blame yeah, him yeah I mean can't take it back but no I I know for sure he he never met Jimmy and Mark Akers that Mike Akers I don't think it's unfortunate that the attorneys didn't didn't you know ask ask you about him. I guess they didn't know. They would have known because it was in the trial. I mean, that's what he said that he met Jamie through you. You know what? And when I was on the stand, they never did ask me that question. That's crazy yeah. that they didn't ask you that. Yeah, they should have. I mean, <laughs> he just said, you know, brother, I was trying to you know make a deal. But we really wasn't cool after that. I just figured, uh, you know, I'm gonna let it slide. Because, you know, first of all, I don't want to go to say and I'm ready to tell out. And, you know, did you know that in his interview, he was talking about Ed Hammond. And they had been... Bill Eddie Hammond. They yeah. had been sellies. But you, you, knew, you knew Eddie? Yeah, I grew up with Eddie. Okay, because he was like... When he was, uh, he was ratting people out, you know, he was like mm-hmm. Ed Hammond, you know, he was sellies with Ed Hammond. This is where he heard the rumor. That's where he knew, the, that's where he first heard about it because he didn't say anything until he was transferred out because they were asking him, do you know anybody else that would know anything, you know, and they went to Hammond and um, Hammond and he goes, but don't tell Hammond. Don't tell him, and I sent you over there. He's one of Denny's boys, you know, like he was afraid. 
of you. Yeah. Bill, so, Bill? Yeah, Bill Moffat said that in his tape-recorded interview. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He wouldn't come out for the first two weeks I was there and shit. You know, just pretty much, you know, come on, sir, Bill Moffat. Before I even said anything to him about Jim, he's the one that came to me, you know, me and said, hey, man, bro, I'm sorry, you know, but your brother, I did what I had to do, or you know what I mean, man? Pretty much, you know, I'm sorry, you know what I mean? We have any problems, and, you know, I was like, well, maybe he's on the streets, but, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's, that's just bullshit. All these people, man, that did that shit to him. You know, some things you can't take back, unfortunately, you know. A rumor that started got Jimmy life in prison. So. That's what's so hard for people to believe that it's a, that it really is based on a rumor and that's it. That's all it is. A rumor. Somebody started spinning the web and next thing you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. We tried to find Bill Moffat to speak with us, but we didn't have any luck. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. Bill Moffat, if you are listening, please feel free to contact us. We would love to speak with you. Tam, what was Moffat in jail for at the time he supposedly heard this confession from Jamie? Well, at the time, he was in jail for battery or aggravated battery. It depends on if it was the 93 or the 94 charge. It was 94 when he was convicted of aggravated battery when he called in the police tip. And then he wasn't he was released on parole in 96. And then in 98, he was convicted of three counts of rape against his wife and that's when he testified during you know during this sentence but his career criminal career started in the late 80s with forgery harassment resisting arrest and then um, starting in 1990 he started getting the battery and aggravated battery charges what was moffat's motive do we know what he got we we don't know what what he got we know that in the 1999 tape, he mentioned the reward money, all of those, all of that nervous laughter. He, you know, he said something interesting that he was, uh, as luck would have it, he was housed with Jamie that one night, which is kind of an odd thing to say. So he seemed pretty excited about coming forward. He testified at Susan's trial that all he got was peace of mind. He said he got no prison time for his um, cooperation. At Susan's trial, Skelton did get him to admit that he knew of the reward money before his alleged confession. Then at Jamie's trial, when he asked, uh, what does he expect to gain from this? He just said, you know, relief from knowing that I held something in that I should have come forward and told a long time instead of waiting till I was in Illinois River when someone else mentioned it. That's what he gained from that. That's all he gained from that was was what he said. There was a tip called in from victim Bill Little's cousin. What was that all about? Well, the tip was called in in June of 96. Um, 
The cousin said that Moffat had told another witness in prison in 95 that Jamie was the trigger man. And then he got back to Bill Little's cousin, who was also in prison. So that's when he called in the tip. The cousin said that he didn't want anything in exchange for it, that it was just about, you know, wanting to assist with, you know, finding the killer of Bill Little. So this is kind of where the cold case detectives picked up on Moffat again. This is the first time we hear that the motive was for drug money. Where did this come from? Yeah, I I mean, that was not mentioned in the original 95 prisoner interview as a motive, only slightly. It's, It's kind of confusing. So he said initially that initially in 95, in that interview, Moffat said that he was doing armed robbery and the kid was giving him a hard time and got mouthy. Then he goes on to say that Jamie had been smoking a pipe for a few days, so he offed the kid. But in 1999, in the beginning of the interview, Moffat said Jamie told him that he was supposed to, it was supposed to be a clean robbery, that, but then Bill Little tried to come at him, and that's when Jamie shot him. Then later on in that 99 interview, he said that they actually just drove up to get gas, then decided at the spur of the moment that they didn't need to pay for it, and then they all went in, and then that Bill Little tried to come around the counter to stop them. And that's when he made the choice to shoot him. And, you know, at that time that Jamie said that there were three of them. And then he went on to say that they had been smoking crack. So he's just kind of all over the place. Is there any history at all of Jamie using drugs? None, none. He was, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) he drank beer. He probably, he smoked weed for sure. But, but that was, that was it. Nothing that would lead to a a murder. Mm -mm. Can you elaborate more on why Jamie supposedly saying he saw a car was so important? This was mentioned several times at the trials, but it was never concrete. What was the significance of this car suggestion? Well, in both of the previous interviews with police, Moffat never mentioned a car being involved. In fact, they tried everything they could to get Moffat to say that Jamie told him that that someone saw him, you know, was Jamie concerned about somebody seeing him, you know, and Moffat kept saying, no, it was the flyers. It was the flyers all around town. And, you know, finally they asked him that several times and, you know, Moffat would not back off of the flyer thing. And you could hear the pauses in there. Like they were really, really trying to get him, you know, to say that somebody saw him. And then eventually in the interview, they're like, well, did, did, did he say anybody pulled up? And he's like, No, no, you know, so it's concrete that through all of those interviews, he never said anybody was pulling up. Now, he did in the grand jury and he did in in the trials because they had to, they wanted to corroborate that Danny Martinez was in the parking lot while the shooting happened. And that's what they needed. And he definitely stepped up, stepped up to the plate because he, you know, does say that he was nervous uh, about, what did he say in the grand jury? There was something about another car that pulled up or drove by or stopped at the gas station or stopped at the stop sign or something. So, you know, he's, then he talked about being nervous again. You know, of course he's nervous because he's lying, but they had to have that car there. They tried to do it during the, you know, during the interviews and he just wasn't biting on it. But now, now we know. So that's why that's where the car comes in. It's just a corrupt, another corroboration we've seen throughout this, you know, throughout this case. 
Moffat testified three times. He gave testimony to the grand jury. He testified at Jamie's co-defendant's trial. And of course, he also testified at Jamie's trial. Let's try to go over the snowball effect, showing how Moffat's story got worse and worse over time. What happened at the grand jury proceedings? Well, at the grand jury, Moffat admitted that he never ran with the same people as Jamie, that he only knew him by name, which is important. He also all of a sudden introduces the idea of cigarettes into the robbery, saying that Bill dropped a pack of cigarettes and that's why he was shot and that Jamie shot him while he was standing up from grabbing them. So that's the first mention of the cigarettes by Moffat. But you might recall that the cigarettes were mentioned before by Steve Scheel saying that Jamie came back to the party with an armful of cigarettes. And that was also mentioned before uh, during our crime scene episode about missing cigarettes. There were no missing cigarettes at all. So that just is another indication to me that there was coaching going on. Moffat also said that Jamie was laughing when he told him about the shooting and the robbery. Um, In his 1999 interview, he did say that he was saying ha-ha about it, but he really elaborates about it to the grand jury to paint a picture of Jamie. Now he says that his cellmate that he had a later time after Jamie said that he was the driver and he told Moffat that Jamie did it and that they were smoking crack and they needed more drug money and that's why they did it. He also mentions that a car pulled up or drove by the stop sign and he said there's something else about it but he can't remember now but he'll write it down when he recalls it and let them know. He also said that the composite with the hat was the one that looked like Jamie And then he said that Jamie was actually in a street gang and there were two other men and maybe one of their sisters involved. And that was the first mention that he brought this up. Also, now he claims that they were cellmates for three nights, whereas in his interview, his recorded interview, he always says that they spent one night together. So when asked about why he would be doing this now, he says, I'm sitting in the worst place you can be for 13 years and I'm risking everything. I'll come back here if I have to testify again because he did it and that's a fact. So I'm wondering, how is he risking everything by coming there? And how does he get to say that that's a fact, that Jamie is the killer? And it just goes to show you that when he's talking to the grand jury and he's able to speak freely, he's building his own credibility and adding a narrative saying that he's risking everything to do the right thing and what he says is fact. And of course, that's good enough to get Jamie indicted. Those are great points. But remember, in his first interview in 94, Moffat said he only spoke with him one time that one night when they were sellies. And then he said that they never discussed it again. Now, in his later interview, he's going off, like you said earlier, he's talking about how they were there for three nights and how they went walked the yard and they went into how much time altogether do you think you spent On that first police report, he made it very clear that they had never discussed it again. So, you know, that's another discrepancy that should have been brought out. Jamie's co-defendant, Susan Claycomb, had a really good lawyer named Steve Skelton. What did Moffat testify to then and how did Skelton handle him? Well, Skelton got Moffat to say that he met Jamie at a kegger at a friend's house. And that's the first time that he brings that up. Remember, he said that back in 1995, they did not run with the same people. But now all of a sudden, he remembers this party. Now he also says that he brought up the shooting 
in the cell and confessed because Jamie was scared of being in Gen Pop because some people knew what he did. But I'm wondering why that if he's scared, he would be telling a stranger in his cell. And I thought that he also said that nobody knew it was him because they didn't collect the $25,000 reward. So how does that even make sense? How are you afraid of going to Gen Pop and people hurting you if nobody knew it was you? And then why would you out yourself to your new celly? Moffat also says that Jamie had a pistol when in his 1999 interview, he only said that he assumed the murder weapon was either a pistol or a rifle because Jamie said simply that he shot the victim. But all of a sudden now Moffat says he knows it was a pistol because Jamie told him so apparently and was also known for carrying one. And that was not ever said before. That's clearly a lie. Moffat also said that he tried to change the conversation a couple times in the cell that night, but Jamie kept coming back to it. But in his 1999 interview, he said that he was the one fishing for more information and he kept asking him because he wanted to know more. And also, all of a sudden, he says that they were a little closer than all the other guys in the prison and that they walked the yard together. So all of a sudden, now they're friends. <laughs> and it do that doesn't make any sense. So later, Skelton got him to say that they were associates before the confession, not friends. And he went over his grand jury testimony line by line for a long time. And he got him to say he always had access to a phone and the mail when he was transferred, but that he never contacted the police. In this very interesting exchange, Skelton gets him to consider why would Jamie ever say such a thing to him when they all know cellmates are snitches. His question was, and you're familiar with the fact that occasionally cellmates or acquaintances, either on the street or behind bars, are called to testify about what other people told them. Moffat says, sure. And Skelton asks, and Mr. Snow, who was just an acquaintance at that point in time during the course of his conversation with you, essentially took a rope, tied it into a noose, and put it around his own throat? And Moffat says, I don't think that's what he believed he was doing at that point. So then continuing, uh, Skelton, as Tam mentions, gets him to admit that he knew of the reward money in advance and that he could have been inserting himself into this to get notoriety in the prison to stay safe. On redirect, Renard, the prosecutor, tries to get him to clarify the discrepancy with the cigarettes being dropped and the motive to shoot him. And Moffat tries to tie these two together to make sense of that and say the cigarettes falling were the reason he came from behind the counter. And since it was unlikely a kid would come from behind the counter like that, Jamie shot him. And that makes no sense. He's clearly lying and not well, but that's how the prosecution tried to mend that story. So Skelton recrosses and is just as confused as we are now. And he asks him like three times if he's saying Bill got shot over threatening Jamie with cigarettes. It got nowhere, but it shows how ridiculous the idea is. Skelton asks, what I'm asking you is, did Snow tell you that William Little was coming at him with a pack of cigarettes? At that point in time, he shot him. And Moffat says, no, sir, that's not what he said. So, you know, what is it? Did he point a pack of cigarettes at him and get shot? It's, you know, it's an incredulous lie. So then Skelton also gets him to admit that it would be a really bad idea for Jamie to be running his mouth like that to everyone he knew. He questioned, now, you know from past experience and just common sense, that if I commit a crime and don't want to get caught, 
about the worst way to go about that is to start running my big mouth to every Tom, Dick, and Harry I run into, right? And Moffa answers, I would think so. So Skelton asks, because the more information that's out there, that certainly quite potentially can lead to fingers being pointed at me or someone who has committed a crime, right? And Moffat says, in most instances, yes. So then after his testimony is almost done, Skelton makes a really bold move, and it shows how good of a lawyer is. And he asks the judge to strike the entire testimony because it's unreliable, it's hearsay. And even though the prosecution argues that it's not hearsay because it's what Jamie said himself, and Jamie's there, he's the source, Skelton goes on to argue that the Supreme Court has ruled there must be a relationship between the witness and the defendant and that the amount of time between the confession and the reporting of it is important. And he says in this case, there's almost zero relationship between the two of them and there's a three-year gap. He also says that Moffitt's prior criminal offenses come into play and also the common sense fact that no one would ever admit information like this to a stranger. And therefore, his testimony should be deemed as all hearsay and stricken. But the judge denies that, saying that there's a previous ruling almost identical to jailhouse informant testimony in this case. So he will have to prove to him how this situation is different. So then they argue about if he can ask Moffat about who was driving the car. We all know he told detectives and the grand jury that it was his old cellmate. So Skelton wants him to try and get him to say his name on record and implicate another man in the crime. But the prosecution never asked him about that. So he has to find a way to introduce this himself. So he says he wants to ask Moffat about it in regards to how people brag in jail. Like, did anyone else brag about this crime? And he reads the judge, Moffat's grand jury testimony, where he insinuates that this other guy identified himself as the getaway driver. And he also argues that that was hearsay when he said it in the first place, that the guy never said explicitly that he did it, that Moffat just put two and two together and made that part of his narrative. So he argues a lot to be able to bring that in, but the judge denies that too, saying it was too speculative. So all that happens next is that he's able to ask Moffat if he was able to review his grand jury testimony before he took the stand today, and if that review helped him to change the truth that he told today. And Moffat answered no, and he was excused. I think it's amazing that the judge ruled that it was speculative, considering the nature of all of the testimony in this trial, because it's completely based on, you know, speculation and nothing matches. That's just incredible to me. Yeah. And I mean, he said it in the transcript. He just testified to that a year earlier. So why can't you read that part back? And Renard knew what he was doing because he didn't bring that up. He only brought up the parts that he wanted Moffat to say. So the prosecution's questioning is really short compared to the defense. And I just don't even understand how that even makes sense that the defense is only allowed to cross-examine on what the prosecutor introduced. I mean, this is The grand jury testimony is evidence. I don't understand why the judge would not allow that in. I know. It's ridiculous. When we look at Jamie's trial, how did Jamie's attorney, Frank Pitzel, handle Moffitt in contrast to Skelton? Well, Moffitt always had mentioned that Jamie said he should have hidden at his sister's house in Missouri. 
But now Moffat's telling the jury that Jamie invited him to hide at his sister's house, too, in the future if he ever needed a place to go. So that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, And when Frank Pitzel gets to examine him, he starts off really strong by copying Skelton. And he wants to get into how Moffat knows that inmates lie in prison to bolster their reputation. And he actually gets into this cunning dynamic where Moffat admits he's a liar. And it goes like this. Question. Has it been your observation or experience that inmates in prison sometimes talk about crimes they've committed because they wish to acquire or maintain a certain reputation? Answer. Well, I think that would be speculative on my part. Question. But you've known people to do that, haven't you? Answer. Without having the facts or any crimes they've committed, I wouldn't know if that were true or false. Question. Have you ever known anybody in prison to lie? Answer. I imagine that's why some of them are there. Question. Have you ever lied? Answer. Sure. Have you? Question. Would you consider? Well, occasionally I do. Well, would you consider yourself to be uh, an honest and truthful person? Answer. I wouldn't be sitting in Western Correctional Center if I was. Question. So your answer is no. You're not an honest and truthful person? Answer. If I was, I wouldn't have hurt my family the way I did. So that was pretty amazing, right? But here we go again. Pitzel's a jerk. He just couldn't stop there. He got him right where he wanted him. It was beautiful. But then he kept badgering him and he ruined it. He started asking him all about his past crimes, how he broke the law and wasn't truthful, how those crimes hurt his family, how many lies he's told. And then Moffitt gets defensive and he starts saying he only lied about breaking the law and he told his mom and dad lies, but that's it. There's nothing on his record that would indicate that he's lying about his testimony ever. So, you know, the whole thing got ruined, in my opinion. So next, Pitzel then does that thing again where he says, well, my client never specifically said he shot Bill Little, right? And Moffitt says, no, but he said he shot BL, the initials for Bill Little. So then Pitzel keeps insisting, like it's a technicality or something, and he makes him clarify on the stand that, according to him, Jamie never explicitly said Bill Little by name. So I don't even know what the point of that was. I mean, it, it seemed pretty petty to me. Then Pitzel continues to copy Skelton, and he gets Moffat to admit that even if he didn't have writing supplies, he never told a guard or a staff member or anyone of authority about the supposed confession, just another inmate. He gets him to elaborate that after being transferred to a minimum security facility for a year and a half, he still never picked up a phone or wrote to the police to report the murder confession or told any staff about it. He then gets him to admit that he never contacted the police until he found out about the reward money in 1994. And that was really good because Moffat had said he found out about the reward money from looking at the flyers that Bill Little's family put out that were posted around town. But since Moffat's always in jail, they're able to determine pretty quickly what year it was that he was out and able to see those. So they know for sure the only year he could have seen it was in 1994. But then Moffat insists that it had no bearing on why he finally contacted the police. But Pitzel gets him to admit that he took Jamie so seriously the night that that supposed confession happened in jail that he couldn't even sleep, but still held off on contacting the authorities for a year and a half. And later on redirect, Pitzel makes a good point again, 
and he gets Moffat to admit that, in fact, he never considered coming forward to authorities until after he had that conversation in 1995 with his other cellmate. And that's the guy that we were talking about before who said he was the getaway driver. And so it's possible that his reason for coming forward was obviously to get in on what this other guy was going to do. And Pitzel gets him to kind of allude to that on the stand. But we don't know if the jury picked up on that point. So then the next thing that he gets questioned about um, to Pitzel's credit, he's the first one to do this. He gets Moffat to admit that he knew the victim Bill Little personally, that they knew each other from the neighborhood and ate dinner together with friends frequently in high school. And if you recall, a tip was called in that Moffat knew about the murder by Bill Little's own cousin. So there's a connection there. That small town thing is apparent here. And I wonder why this wasn't dug into more. And that was the last interesting part of Moffat's testimony. And he, he also says in his interview that they used to, I mean, they used to go to that store 50 or 60 times a day. I mean, that, that is just crazy. You know, that nobody goes down to a gas station 50 or 60 times a day. I mean, I don't even know if that's possible, but you know, I mean, that, you know, it's just this absurd uh, testimony and they just let it go. You know, they, they, they just let it go. It's crazy. They just, like Leslie was saying, they just cherry picked whatever they were going to use and didn't mention the insane parts. So what did Pitzel miss? Well, he didn't get to bring in the other cellmate who said he was the getaway driver by name. And I think he could have with that last question where he made Moffat admit that the other cellmate caused him to come forward. Could he not have asked who it was? Could he not have asked what was said? I don't know. Also with that issue, Skelton tried to get Moffat's entire testimony thrown out during Susan's trial, and he was unsuccessful. And the judge said, on record, until someone can prove to me that this situation with the jailhouse informants is different from this other ruling, which is allowed, I will allow it. Okay, well then what did Frank do to work out that issue? He had five months. He obviously did nothing. There should have been a pretrial motion to get that thrown out, just like Skelton had tried to do dramatically with Danny Martinez. And that was a missed opportunity. So even if it didn't work, it could have been strategic because he could have used it as an opportunity to get everything on the record for Jamie's future appeals. And then also the other thing that wasn't used was Moffitt's 1999 interview tape, where he mentions twice that he knew there was reward money and he actually thought it was for $25,000 when it was really only $7,500. So Pitzel could have played into that. And shown how excited Moffat was about that reward money, but he didn't. He did spend a lot of time asking him about the time frame of when he learned about the money versus when he called in the tip, but he really should have played that audio to further impeach him. I do not think he was as strong as Skeev Skelton was at all. In that in that audio, when he starts talking about the reward money, I mean the first word I thought of was giddy. I mean, he was giddy about it. And again, he says, as luck would have it. 
I mean, all of those lead to he was getting something in return, you know, for what he was saying. There's no other reason for him to say, as luck would have it, we were sellies one night. And then when he starts talking about the reward money, he's just giddy. It's absurd. Yeah, I kind of wish there was $25,000 because then, you know, we might have been able to track so much better who got all this money. But there was only $7,500 to go around to all these different people. So I wonder what they got. Remember last week we were talking about the SNS reward? Wasn't that one $25,000? Because Bruce, I was saying that was the highest reward that anybody in Illinois had ever gotten from Crime Stoppers and the way that they split it up. I think that might be where he got that from. You can see that he's mixing mixing things up all over the place. Tam, the last three informants we have discussed in previous podcasts have all given affidavits to recant their statements. Has Moffat done the same? He has not given an affidavit, nor has he discussed, you know, the case. He's just um, one of those who, you know, won't talk about it. So maybe he'll get a conscience and come forward. Just going back to this, uh, we keep comparing the two trials, of course, with Susan Claycomb and Jamie. But I'm amazed every time we these new details come up, just to show the contrast between the two defense teams. And we see a skilled attorney defending Susan Claycomb, who was, of course, acquitted, in contrast to the, to the uh, defense Jamie had. Yeah, what's really amazing is that Jamie's defense had all the records. So literally, he just had to copy him. And you can see where some days, some witnesses, he feels up to copying them. And, he, you know, he does okay, but he never can go beyond that. If he can even remember to copy, he, you know, he can never take it to the next level. He can never do his homework and go back and fix the losses that the other guy had. Maybe Skelton made it look easy. Maybe Skelton made it look like when you bring somebody to court who did not commit the crime, of course they're going to get off because the evidence isn't there and that's how the justice is supposed to work. So maybe he made it look easy and Frank just thought he could copy him and, you know, it would get done. But, you know, we can't forget that that Jamie's attorneys were paid thousands of dollars to sit in on this trial. Now, they not only heard Susan's entire trial and sat in on Susan's entire trial, they have the transcripts. And you, you are on the money, Leslie. They didn't use anything that Skelton used, you know, to acquit to, to, to that resulted in, in, in an acquittal for Susan. And it's, it is maddening because they not only had that, you know, they, they at least had 30 tapes that we know of. Now we have 70, but they had critical tapes. As far as we know, Jeff Pilo's dispatch tape, they had Jeff Pilo's interview tape, you know, that they didn't use to contrast um, Danny Martinez. They had Moffitt's tape. They had all of this information. And I mean, all he had to do was prepare. That's it. Go over the testimony before, you know, before he puts somebody on the stand or, you know, he knows what witnesses are. And that that is so ineffective. It's really (laughs) obvious that he did just what he said he did during his own sentencing for being, you know, a terrible lawyer and how he had to go to jail for robbing an old lady. 
you know, he says, I went to the bar all day and then I winged it. And everybody thought I was so great that I could just show up in court and, you know, get these witnesses on the stand and get a result. Well, it didn't work. I mean, and I wonder if this was his last criminal trial as big as this, where it failed so terribly before he lost his license. I think after this, because if you look at his his record, you know, where he what where the, his disciplinary record, there was one and I'm almost positive it was after this trial where he failed. He was hired to file a post-conviction petition for another defendant and he didn't do it timely. And 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 the uh, Supreme Court is who reviews those the board and they're the ones that that said that the guy was right. He failed to file. He was paid to file a post a piece a post conviction petition and he failed to file it timely. That's part of his disciplinary record. It's I don't know that this was his last hurrah and you know, I hope because we don't know everybody that didn't file something against him. Well I was just thinking of just the fact that Pitzel had Claycomb's trial all that information at his disposal. And as you mentioned, Leslie, previously, he tried to follow Skelton during the questioning of these informants, but then he always went off the rails. He just stepped all over himself and he got the witnesses to say things that he didn't really want them to say. I think it just shows that he was unstable at the time. Yeah, you're spot on because he did. He was bipolar. He did have mania. He didn't take his medicine when he was supposed to take it. So it's almost like he got really hyper, you know, really excited while he's getting Moffitt to say that beautiful thing. You know, it starts off with, with Moffitt arguing with him and telling him I'm not a liar and I can't attest to why people in jail lie. And then all of a sudden he's like, I am a liar and that's why I'm in jail. But he, he just gets so hyper and he just can't stop himself, can't help himself. And that is blatantly ineffective. I, you know, I don't understand why that can't, that behavior can't just be shown, that dialogue. Like, why would you do that? Why would you treat a witness like that and just keep going and going and going? So, I mean, it's evidence to all of us. I don't know why the Court of Appeals can't see that. In this episode, we showed you how pervasive the rumor mill in McLean County really is. How lies spread by people on the outside trying to stay on the outside can transcend concrete walls and rouse jailhouse snitches. Bill Moffat heard there was a big reward for solving this case, and as luck would have it, a year later, he remembered spending just one night bunked with the guy at the center of a rumor. So he called in a tip, told the grand jury he knew Jamie did it for a fact, and then made up a lengthy and cruel confession by trial. Later, he told a friend he made it up, but he has yet to officially recant. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Bill Moffitt first heard this rumor from his celly who went on to get himself a federal deal for his cooperation with the prosecution. How did Ed Hammond get away with this? That's next time on Snow Files.